0: fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day I'm so delighted that this evening's recording is sponsored by Sweaty Betty. Yes! (laughs) I'm sure many of you in the audience will already be familiar with this global activewear and lifestyle brand who are on a mission to empower women through fitness and beyond. I personally wear their clothes all the time and I'm a massive fan of their best selling power leggings. So good that they sell one pair every 30 seconds. I love the way that they make me feel held and empowered with four-way stretch for extra comfort. They're so versatile, you can wear them for almost anything. A spin class, a yoga session, or act lunch with friends. And there's lots of clever little details like pockets I can slip my phone into. They are bum-sculpting, sweat-wicking, and quick-drying. Truly everything you could ever need in a pair of leggings. You have a chance to get 20% off everything until the 14th of December with the code HOWTOFAIL20. That's 20% off everything until the 14th of December with the code HOWTOFAIL20 on sweatybetty.com. Terms and conditions apply and can be found on sweatybetty.com. Now, when I was 12, I remember hearing a teenage girl being interviewed on the radio about a book she'd written. She was 16, and her debut novel, The Chronicles of Narmo, had just been published. In the interview, the writer was funny and smart and brilliant, and because I too wanted to write books and be a journalist, I took note of her name. It was Catelyn Moran. In the three decades that followed, I watched her career with a mixture of awe and jealousy. She became one of the most prolific and influential newspaper columnists of the modern age, a best-selling author who changed the face of feminism, a screenwriter and cultural commentator with a clutch of British press awards to her name. In short, she became an icon. I have learned so much from Moran's work. Her first non-fiction book, *How to Be a Woman*, published in 2011, was part memoir, part manifesto, and became a global hit, shifting a million copies in 38 countries. It's no exaggeration to say that a generation of women and men have had their outlook on life forged by her wit, intelligence, and her fearless capacity for exploding taboo subjects. Her follow-up, How to Be a Woman, was published in 2020 and explored how Moran's middle-aged years were not exactly how her younger self imagined they would be. True wisdom, she says, is realizing how little you know and how many mistakes you've made and that you're going to carry on doing this stuff until the grave. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the phenomenally talented, the utterly brilliant, the irrepressible, Catlin Moran.
1: going to get any better than that. Just <laughs> cheers, cheers, darling. And then cheers. we've
0: finished. Thank you very much. Good night. You were my, you were my childhood hero, but also my childhood contemporary.
1: Which shouldn't be allowed, quite frankly. <laughs> we were both very young, I guess. Like, kind of like I was the same because I was watching Victoria Corin Mitchell publishing a book at the age of eighteen when I was sixteen, and just being like, "Oh God, yeah. she's my hero," but I too am jealous. <laughs> like, kind of, this is what women do. Like, kind of like, you know, the, we think there are so few opportunities available to us that we have our role models, but we also think maybe we'll have to destroy our role models in order to get yes. their job, which is not how it works now. <laughs> Every time a woman is successful, it opens the door for another woman. This is one of the key facts that we need to learn. That's so true. And very often jealousy is also a feeling of possibility. It's pointing out the thing that you want. Yeah, and I think also I realised that kind of all the boys that I wanted to fuck when I was younger, it wasn't so much that I wanted to fuck them, it was that I wanted to be them. And there were so few... (laughs) I just that that thing of like, kind of like you're confusing the fact that you want to have sex with them with the fact that you kind of want to eat them and have them inside you and live their lives, (laughs) that kind of... When you've sorted out those two different conflicting feelings, you <laughs> sort a lot of stuff out
0: in life. Before we got on stage, I was explaining to you that I was reading this advertising trail for Sweaty Betty. And you revealed that your nickname was Sweaty Bessie, and so is mine. Right.
1: Because we're both proud, sweaty women. I'm enormously sweaty, and it's the worst kind of sweat. So this is where you're different. You do sweat from your face, don't you? Yes, I get a very, very sweaty face.
0: Not right now. I've got a shitload of powder on. Yeah, yeah. But in a yoga class, like every yoga class for me
1: is a hot yoga class. (laughs) See, I'm envious, because the one place you do want to sweat is from your face, because you want to cleanse the pores and have glowing skin. My face has never sweated once. I've basically got Prince Andrew's face, (laughs) (laughs) and that's just a fact Um, but the rest of me just sweats profusely and it's not a lovely glow it just smells of onions It's literally... And one of the good things about, you know, kind of like doing press and publicity and photo shoots and stuff is that you get to talk to makeup artists, and makeup artists know everything. And I was doing Alan Carr's show, and uh, the makeup artist was talking about how sweaty I am, and she was like, yeah, now I can smell. And, And she went, have you never used sweat pads? And I was like, what are sweat pads? And she was like, well, you can buy these special ones that are very expensive, and they're like a pad that you put inside your clothes, and it absorbs the sweat and protects your clothes. Or you could just use a sanitary towel. So... I currently have two sanitary towels in my
2: armpits.
1: (laughs) Occasionally one has fallen out when I'm shaking hands with people, but... I feel we're in the modern world now, and that's perfectly acceptable.
0: (laughs) But do you think, top tip, Mm. but also do you think that we should actually reclaim sweat? We should reclaim the power of sweat as women who for so long have been told that it's
1: unfeminine and that we must pretend to glow rather than to sweat. Actually, we should be proud sweaters. No, totally. I mean, I wish it smelt less, but, like, visually, I think it looks really cool. And also the thing... (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I really love... I, I realised a while ago that I'd never watched men's films when I was growing up. Like, you know, I just won't watch The Godfather. I don't care. It's just some men just having a fuss about something. I don't care. <laughs> um, the films I love are musicals, and that's because the, the female character is in the centre. And unlike the characters that you, female characters that you see in men's films, rather than just being sexy and standing around and being a bit sulky and then being murdered... Uh, <laughs> Girls in musicals are amazing at something. They have a fantastic fucking ability. They can dance. They can sing. They're usually really funny as well. And you get to see a woman just, you know, I'm sure she was sweating, but they powdered her down. But you see a woman straining every sinew and dancing and singing. And, you know, that was until very recently the only place that you would see a woman being amazing physically. Now, obviously, we live in a world of women's sports and women winning the Euro World Cup. But back then, it was the only time you could see a woman doing anything other than just sitting around being thin and pretty and then being murdered. So.
0: (laughs) As we spoke about in the introduction, you have lived so much of your life through the written page. Yes. And you have also written about your life and your opinions. And I wonder how that has been, sort of growing up in the public eye. Do you worry or care what other people think of
1: you? It's a really weird binary, because on the one hand, I'm a massive people pleaser. Like, I don't want to hurt anyone, I don't want to offend anyone, I just want to amuse people, I want them to like me, I want to be helpful, I just want to be their best friend. But on the other hand, a lot of the things that I want to write about, I'm aware could shock or offend or alarm people or make them think that I'm a horrible person. Like when I first started writing how to be a woman, I was writing about having my period, masturbating, having an abortion, having a miscarriage, having an eating disorder, things that like would make people feel uncomfortable or judge me. And so so much of the effort was going, I need to make this palatable to everyone. Like whatever I'm going to do effort-wise, it's going to be doing things that someone could burst into a room and go, fuck you, I'm going to talk about my vagina, and going, okay, I'm not going to do it that way. try and do it in a nicer kind of warmer more inclusive way so yeah it's a literal 50 50 mix of really desperately never wanting to offend anybody and wanting to make everyone happy but going ultimately what i do is if there's something that is seen as secret or shameful or taboo or not to be spoken about that's always where i want to go yeah. Like, that's my primary thing. If I spot something that no one else has talked about, I feel like a footballer on a field going, oh, yeah. my God, I've got the whole pitch and there's an empty goal. Why has... Yes. And, and, and often you see the shock in that. Like, I remember when I wrote about masturbation and how to be a woman. It was like I was summoned onto Newsnight and I was <laughs> inquisited by Jeremy Paxman, who just started the conversation by going, but why would you talk about masturbation? Uh, to which I could only reply, because it's a great hobby. It doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't make you fat, it doesn't cost any money, and it really relaxes you, like, kind of. um, And he just seemed very, very unhappy at that point. He looked looked like a really unhappy horse that wanted to gallop away. (laughs) You're a truth-teller, essentially. So why did
0: you wait ten years to write more than, than a woman, than a woman, woman after yeah. how to be a woman. Why, why was there a 10-year gap? I, ha- I mean, obviously you had to become more of a woman, I guess. Yeah, I, I literally <laughs> had to become
1: more of a woman, yeah. I, yeah. I put on a stone and a half between those two books. And it was really weird when I realised I put on a stone and a half. Whenever a woman says, I've put on a stone and a half, you then expect them to go, so I've, I've gone on this diet, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to overhaul my life, and I realise I've made a terrible mistake by becoming bigger, and I'm now going to than myself again. And my only reaction when I realised I put on a stone and a half was to go, well, i Better buy some bigger trousers then. Like, that's an option. Like, you don't have to suddenly go, oh, my God, I've made a terrible mistake and I must reverse it. You can just go, well, I'll just go to a size 14 and carry on. It's absolutely fine. Mm. So, yes, one, I had become more than a woman. And secondly, I just had to live some more life. The first book was about my life from the ages of 13 to 32. And I deliberately chose every chapter as a subject of something that I think would happen to most women. So sort of periods, growing pubic hair, kind of you know, bad boyfriends, a ludicrously expensive wedding. And then that's it, I kind of spunked all my life. Yes. <laughs> so I then had to go and live another 10 years and realize the big difference between being a younger woman and a middle-aged woman is that when you're younger, all your problems are you. You're trying to work out who you are, you're trying to work out what you're gonna wear and who you love and what you want to do in your job and like, what you think about everything. And then when you become a middle-aged woman, all your problems are other people's problems. Because as a middle-aged woman, you are taking care of everyone. You're taking care of your children, you're taking care of your family, you're taking care of your parents who are getting older or getting ill or dying. Your friends are divorcing and you're there as a support system. And the job of a middle-aged woman is to love and care endlessly for no pay at all and hold the threads of society together with your bare hands whilst doing everything else at the same time. And I really wanted to write a book about that because the middle-aged women that I met would just be like, "No, I'm boring. Like, kind of, I don't, I don't really do anything. Like, you know, I'm so ugly. Don't look at me." <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to write a book that just went, "No, you're fucking amazing." The job that middle-aged women do, because it's in the domestic sphere, because it happens in the house, it seemed to be dull. And the things that women are doing at this age is the kind of stuff that you would normally have in a ring quest, in a massive action movie. Like, this is genuine life-and-death stuff. You are having to psychologize people. You are saving people. You are literally making love and care. And I just wanted to throw a spotlight on these women and go, you are actually fucking superheroes. You are actually the hero that Gotham doesn't want but needs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You are... You are like Batman, the person who is solving everything and fixing everything for absolutely no fucking credit at all. And I love you.
0: <laughs> such a beautiful answer. So, I mean, such a profoundly beautiful answer. My best friend Emma and I talk a lot about the power of the crone years.
1: Yes. Just the crone, again, reclaim the crone. Yeah, crone, hag, witch. like yes. Kind of like, they're awesome things to be. I'm reading this amazing book at the moment, book club moment. It's called Girly Drinks by Mallory O'Meara who's an American journalist and she there's been lots of books recently that have been rewriting of history telling it from women's points of view. Uh, Sort of reclaiming of feminist heroes and telling stories that we didn't have before. But a lot of them do tend to be sad because these women do tend to end up dying and terrible things happen to them. This is the first positive retelling of women's history that I've ever read because it's done through the medium of alcohol. (laughs) And unbeknownst to me, previously, the jobs that you would have pre-feminism, you could either be a wife, you could be a nun, or you could be a a, a prostitute. That was it. That was the options that we had. And she's pointing out that, no, there was a fourth. It was the women in every country in the world, all the way through history, who made alcohol we were the ones who were put in charge of brewing. So in China and Japan, the young women would chew up the rice and spit it into a massive communal pot, and that would be brewed up to make sake. And in the UK, we had ale wives, and they would make ale in a huge copper cauldron. And when the ale was ready, they would take their brooms and stick them in the roof of their houses to tell everybody that was the sign to say the ale is ready. And they would wear their Puritan hats. They would make extra large ones like an advertising hoarding and walk around the town so everyone would know (laughs) the ale was ready. And obviously, at this point in the book, I'm going, hang on. So they were looking like witches. They, were, they had the cauldron and the broomstick and the big hat. And sure enough, because the alewives' alehouses were so popular, people chose to go to them on a Sunday and get drunk rather than go to church. And you can see the first edicts that are brought out by the church going, you can choose to come to God in church or go to the devil with the alewives. And that is the start That of the witch trials is amazing. This whole book is absolutely fucking mind blowing. I cannot recommend it enough. It's talking about Cleopatra was in a drinking club with um, Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, and they were called the Immortal Livers because they believed (laughs) they could get so drunk they would live forever. Oh, it wasn't
0: just that their livers were really good. uh, And also, yes, obviously to us, we're like, yes, that's so clever. uh, This book is so wonderful. What's it called again? It's called Girly Drinks. Okay, that sounds amazing. Yes. You, Before we get on to your three failures, mm. you, and we chatted about this before, said something so brilliant about the presumption that all women in the public eye must be so aware of their privilege that all of their work has to speak to absolutely everyone, otherwise they're a terrible person. Yes. And I know that that's something that has been levelled at you yes. and at me, and we are both incredibly privileged yes. women. But one of the things that you said, which really resonated with me, was that no one ever goes, Philip Roth, you've written something that hasn't included all men. Yes. Tell us, unpack that a bit for us, because I think you're so eloquent on it.
1: Well, how could you ever write anything that addressed everyone? There are, even if I'm just writing for women, so I knock out half the population and I'm just talking to women, there are 4.4 billion women in the world, and I haven't met most of them. (laughs) And I haven't lived their lives. Like, all you can ever do is talk about what you know and what you think. And... So, and th- what sentence, like, you know, how would the book start? If you started to write a book that you intended every woman in the world to read and relate to and go, yes, that is my truth also, how would the first sentence be? It would have to go on forever. When I mean, you were just sort of saying hello to your readers and just naming every single country and tribe and religion and skin colour and sexual preference, it would go on forever. It would, be, it would be ugly writing, and it wouldn't be truthful. And I also don't believe that it's correct or right to write to other people's experience. Like, you know, the base fact of being a writer or communicator is you are selling your life and that is the material you have to sell. I don't want to go around claiming other people's lives and selling that as well. I want those people to write a book so I can read it and go, this is amazing, and tell everybody else about it. That's ultimately the only thing you can do with your privilege. You tell your truth, and when someone else tells their truth, you tell everyone and go, here's another amazing truth. That's the only way it can work. And I, I, I feel this burden on women, and particularly younger women, that they feel that if they can't include everyone and cover everything, then they failed, and they will be held up to accusations of kind of ignoring the rest of the world. There's a difference between ignoring the rest of the world and going, I don't know about it, and I'm not going to pretend to know about it because I don't want to take their material. That's their job to do, and I can't wait for them to do it. Um, So, so yes. (laughs) Thank you. You also make the point that women or people of any
0: gender shouldn't undermine what they do know because they're too worried about offending other audiences. Yes. You shouldn't just constantly be in a state of self-dismissal. Like, actually, we do all have things to share about our own unique experiences.
1: Yeah. No, every story... You know, my favourite thing in the world is just going and talking to someone. You know, just just literally sitting down with someone and going, so, tell me the story of your life. Like, kind of like... Even if you're sat next to the most boring person in the world, if you ask them enough questions, they will become fascinating. Mm. You know, they will have a story to tell. And everyone has that inside them. And, yeah, you just want more stories. I don't want the three most successful women to write everyone's stories and every experience. I want 3,000 women to all write their stories and their experience. One of my biggest mottos is always expand the lexicon. Like, kind of like, it's never about a few people doing better. It's about expanding the lexicon, having thousands of people all doing well. That's, to me, what progress is.
0: Let's move on to your failures. Yes. There's quite a shift change here in terms of tone because your first failure, and I'm so glad you're talking about it because... I'm sure it will affect many people in this audience. Your first failure is, you wrote it to me, as being so afraid of sadness, I did not deal with my daughter's eating disorder in the right way. Yes.
1: So I was raised in a family that just kind of had never heard of or didn't believe in sadness. Like kind of whatever my problem was when I went and talked to my mother, whether it was like kind of like I have terrible period pains or I'm very and anxious about the fate of the whales or kind of, you know, what what will my life be like, was always to say this, why don't you have a poo and a hot bath and go to bed? So (laughs) that was, that was it. (laughs) Sequentially? Yeah. It wasn't, you you weren't doing them at the same time? Sometimes I did do them all at the same time, I
0: have to admit. (laughs) It's a lovely image.
1: (laughs) If you're clever enough with a hot water bottle and a duvet, you can do all three at once. But, um... (laughs) But yes, so we just didn't... There were eight children and two parents in a three-bedroom council house in Wolverhampton. And at one point, they were breeding Alsatian dogs as well. So it it was a very crowded house full of poo. And there wasn't time for anyone's emotions. Like, kind of like, you just couldn't have them. And as I was saying before, I was raised on musicals. So for me, it was like, okay, well, I can... Like Marge Simpson says in The Simpsons, I can take all my emotions and crush them down into a ball and push them to the bottom of my stomach and ignore them and simply watch the jolly musicals instead. And I will just pretend that I'm cheerful Judy Garland cracking on with everything. And that has actually generally worked for me. Like, I don't really have that many terrible emotions. I'm a very cheerful person. And so, because it had worked for me, when my daughter started being depressed and anxious and scared of things at the age of 11 or 12, first of all, I obviously told her to have a poo and a hot bath and go to bed. And then I progressed to, why don't you take all your emotions and push them down to the bottom of your stomach? I'm sure it'll be fine. And then we watched a lot of musicals. And that, oddly enough, did not cure her of what is a mental illness. Like, I did not know that that was the start of her being, you know, very profoundly mentally ill. So, how I'm, I'm sure there are people in the audience who know this and have experience of this, whether themselves or someone they love. And I just want to say hello. I, I, I know what your life is like, and, you know, I wish I could hug you all. But, you know, for those who don't know, an eating disorder is like an iceberg. The bit where they stop eating and start self-harming and overdosing is the tip of an iceberg. What's underneath it is depression and anxiety. And as I came to understand in the years that followed, she was ill for five years, is that the reason someone starts physically showing you how unhappy and depressed they are by not eating, by turning into a skeleton, by cutting themselves up, by overdosing, is because they can't say it anymore that if they were saying how sad and unhappy they were, that's all they'd be saying all day. And either they become bored of saying it, or they run out of ways of saying it, or they feel that it's not being understood, or they don't want to make a fuss, or they don't want to draw attention to themselves, or even the act of saying it makes them feel worse, that they have now gone into another phase where they're just going to physically show you all the time how unhappy they are. So it took a long time to understand that, and I went through many phases of trying to cure her anxiety and depression. First of all, I tried to reason her out of it. I was like, she's incredibly bright. I am reasonably clever. If I give her all the facts that she needs to know, then I will TED talk her out of not eating. So I would talk to her about nutrition and energy and you know, life and all these things you need to eat. Like, you know, Every creature on earth needs to absorb energy in some way. You are no different from the plants or the animals you must eat. And that didn't work. And then I got angry. And I was like, why are you doing this? You're an incredible girl. Life is amazing. You can make the choice to stop this now. Like, come on, just stop this. Like, don't do this. Take control of it. You're a strong girl. Stop. That didn't work. And then I thought maybe suffering like our Lord Jesus Christ might help. And just cried a lot in front of her to show her how sad it was making me feel. And going if you can't feel how bad this is, if you're emotionally shut down, then maybe if you see in someone that you love how sad it makes them to see what you're doing and how you're living your life, maybe that will be the breakthrough that we need. And amazingly enough, that wasn't the answer either. And in the end, what I had to learn after a bunch of therapy and amazing experts and reading as much as I could is that what she really needed was for someone to look at her and say, you're sad, aren't you? You are sad. I can see that. I am so sorry that you feel this bad. I'm not scared of this. You can talk to me about it. I'm going to be with you all the way through this. I have a plan. I know what we need to do. And I'm going to help you, however hard it is, to work through this plan that will make you better. And that took five years to learn that. Because when I, and I went everywhere, and I rang everyone, and I looked for all the information, there isn't anywhere that tells you, that that's what is happening and that's what you need to do. Everything that I've learned is pieced together from hundreds of different sources. And that was why I wanted to write about it in the book because when she finally got better, she and she is totally better now, she's too better. She's, she's too fucking much. She's, 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 she's thriving, as the young people say. And what she said was, you need to write about this because for my generation... There is no stigma or guilt in talking about mental illness and eating disorders. We have found a way to talk about this. We talk about this all the time. But your generation, the parents, you were brought up in a time when you didn't understand these things. And a lot of you think it's your fault. And a lot of you have guilt. And so every time you're talking to us, we can see that you're freaking out and feel terrible and worried you're going to make things better. And the parents need to know how to make the children better. Because even if you do finally get to the top of that waiting list for help, And mental health is so criminally underfunded in this country. And it's such a terrible waste of time and money and lives that they only help you when you're at a crisis point. And also, it's so damaging because young people aren't stupid. They know if they're at the bottom of a waiting list, then if they become more ill and more troubled and cut themselves up more and take more overdoses and become thinner, then they'll be taken to the top of the waiting list. And so, you have this appalling situation where these children are doing something which is in a kind of really weird, horrible, dark way, quite brave, and going, I'm going to fuck myself up even more because that's the only way I can get help. And that is a terrible position to put young people in, but they know the truth of the way the system works. So, even if you get to the top of the waiting list and you finally get all the help that you need, you're only going to see that doctor two or three times a week, maximum. And the rest of the time is down to you as the parent to take care of that child. And if you do not know what you are talking about, and if you do not know how to help that child, and if you have not worked out all of your problems, then that child is probably not going to get better. And so that is why I wanted to write about it in the book, just to go, here's everything I've learned. I hope this is helpful. Because the thing I want to do more than anything else is be useful. And I have to say of anything that I've ever written, the response to that was nuts. We serialized it in the Times and I literally got thousands and thousands of parents contacting me going, now I understand it, now I understand the language, now I understand the basis of this, now I can help. And that was a profound privilege because you know, I love to entertain, you know, I love to be funny, I love to like, talk about secrets and stuff, but the thing I want to do most is be useful. Mm. All the books that I read, that I loved the most, at the end of it, I was like, okay, I feel like I've learned something now.
0: I mean, it's why you write how-to books.
1: Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. That it's mo- why you write how-to books, right? <laughs> it is too, But yes. that's, you know, that's yes. the clue is in the titles. Like, yes. when you write a how-to book, you're just going, yeah, this is knowledge. I'm not just turning up and kind of going, wow. It's like yeah. I genuinely want to tell you something really important. We can't all progress until we know these things.
0: So... So important and so powerfully spoken about just now. And I do highly recommend that everyone reads that chapter in your book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about that exchange that you had with your daughter where she said, write about it because Mm. your generation needs to know because you think it's your fault. Yes. Did you have that phase? And was it particularly painful because you are a feminist icon? Oh, God, yeah. and, And have been so helpful to so many people in embracing who they are and their natural shape and all of that, like, did,
1: did it feel particularly difficult for you? Oh, fuck me. Like, when you asked me to do this, I, I just sat there in my kind of toad of toad haulish way and was like, but I've never failed at anything, <laughs> I kind of... <laughs> it's so droll she's asked me. I'm sure I'll pull something out my ass, but, like, <laughs> genuinely quite awesome. Um but that was the most profound failure because when you go in when you first start getting the help you're put into classes with other parents to you know to be given a very hasty kind of like desperate cobbled together brief and primer on what's going to happen. And the first thing they tell you is, like, kind of like, you turn up thinking that at the end of this one-hour lesson, as a parent, they're going to go, so this is why it happened, and this is what you do, and she'll be fine in two weeks. That that summer holiday is definitely going to be fine. And the first thing they tell you is, the average course of an eating disorder is five to seven years. And that is unbelievably devastating, because you just go, well, that's all of her teenage years. And all I ever wanted her to do was to be happy. I, I had a fairly shit adolescence and My dream was always that I would be able to have children who had a happy childhood and would have everything they would want and would have no guilt and no shame and would love themselves. And, like, I did everything I could to make sure that they would hit their teenage years and just have the kind of teenage years you see in American movies where it's all just proms and giggly sleepovers and kind of wearing nice clothes and being happy. And it was like, oh, God, it's not. It's going to be five to seven years of hospitals and ambulances and medication and NG tubes and... And so walking into that room, and everyone did know who I was in there. It was a North London hospital, and they'd all read the book. And um, so they, you know, the, walking into that room, it was like, okay, so the body-positive feminist has fucked up a kid. Like, kind of, like, she obviously didn't know what she was talking about. Like, kind of, it's great she wrote a book, but she's fucked up a kid. Well done. Um, oh, God, I'm crying. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: Thank you, thank
1: you, thank you for talking about this. Oh, no, 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 thank you. No, it's... it's um, thank you. Yeah. Oh,
0: God. <laughs> oh, wow. Have a swig of
1: champagne. Oh, wow. Well. I, I have never cried on stage. Oh, my God. And I would put my special Chanel eyeliner on as well, so yeah, but, uh, we'll soon cat, find cat out name. how waterproof that is.
0: As an interviewer, you know
1: that that's, like, fantastic for me. Oh, God, no, of course <laughs> What a scoop! I know. Every time (laughs) I've made someone cry, I'm just like, yes, that's sweet, sweet goal. As a people pleaser, you've definitely pleased me. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I'm kidding. kidding. Obviously, subconsciously, I was like, yeah, it's failure. I will cry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the pain that you that you
1: and your daughter lived through and survived. Yes, I mean, God, she's so well now. She's amazing. But yeah, that. As a parent, I mean, any, any parent will know this, like, your nightmare is that your child is sad. That something... The worst sentence that you can hear in the world other than there's something wrong with the toilet is... <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> then you can't go for your cheering up poo. Exactly, right? Cycle. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's, it's cool. a vicious yeah. cycle. <laughs> but the um, worst thing that can happen is something to your kids, and especially if it's your specialist subject... Like, that was the biggest humiliation. I was like, teenage girls on my specialist subject. Mm. I, you know, I wrote the fucking book on how to get through a troubled teenage years. Like, mm. kind of like, I'm an expert in teenage girls. Bright, weird teenage girls. How the fuck did this happen to me? You know, now she's well, you just realize, well, that's, that is how life works. You know, you think you know everything. And then, you, you know, and particularly a really bright, clever daughter, they just turn up and go boom, you know nothing. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, Your mascara hasn't run, by the way. You look beautiful.
1: I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
2: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No.
0: Before we move on to your second failure, I I want to ask you, because you have analysed what is going on with teenage girls Mm. right now, and one of the things that you cleverly say is that they don't have that much to look forward to Yes, because of how we are. Right. So we don't celebrate older women, in
1: the way that maybe we should that would make teenagers feel positive about growing older. This is a huge thing, like, and I, I didn't realise, but, like, kind of, like, the conversations that our children hear, like, children are always listening, they are always aware of what's going in the house, and their specialist subject is their parents, and what's going on in the world, and what the future is going to be, because they've got to live in it. And all the conversations are about how fucked everything is. It's like, you'll never be able to buy a house, like, you know, the, the world is going to burn, the right is on the rise, like, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like, racial and sexual attacks, like, kind of like you live in a bin like there you go yeah <laughs> and then when they come to us stricken and go i hear there's some bad news about my future what we say is oh god no okay shit no because what's going to be amazing is you guys are incredible like we're just old assholes and we fucked it up but you young people are amazing and you've got your internet and your Greta Thunberg and <gasps> You'll fix it all. I believe in you, kid. <laughs> and we think that makes them feel better. We think that's an empowering thing to say, but it's not because all the kids are hearing is mummy and daddy, fucked this really hard. Save us. Yeah. And we take the responsibility away from ourselves. Yeah. Like kind of that's a really notable thing. And the other thing as well that I really realize the difference between writing a book for and for and about younger women and writing a book for middle-aged women is young women are. That the wave of feminism that we had in the last 10 years has been so amazing about your younger life, your teenager life, your, your early 20s, it's endlessly chronicles in Broad City and Girls and Fleabag and Beyonce and Rihanna, and kind of we have all this thing about talking about being young and having your fun and working out who you are and being a boss girl and all this kind of stuff. But we don't... The feminism stops at the point where it stops being young women. We stop talking about being older women and then we see women dropping out and kind of, and all we hear is kind of you know, you become invisible as an older woman and then you're gonna get the menopause and the And we don't make being a grown adult aging woman look like a great job. Mm. If you were an 11 or 12 year old girl just going into puberty and you were told, okay, well you'll have 10 years of like fucking around and drinking and being a boss girl and it will be crazy but maybe your friends will get you through it. And then after that, yeah, I don't know, that all sounds a lot if you're 11 or 12 and like the really big thing is that in the last century the start of puberty has shifted from 16 which is where it was in the early 1900s to 10 or 11 there are 8 and 9 year old girls starting puberty so they're having the physical experience of becoming a woman but they still have the brains of children and that's terrifying that you're a child and you're bleeding and you're growing breasts and someone's going, well, here's what happens when you're grown-up. Like, you know, one in four of you are going to be sexually assaulted and kind of like, you know, you're not going to get paid equally and kind of like, you know, I hope you've got some good friends. <laughs> we need to remember that the children are watching. We need to remember so much, half of feminism's job is to point out the problems and the scary things and the things that are bad in our lives. But the other less examined part of feminism is joy and talking about why it is amazing to be a woman and what is incredible about it and the power of it and the beauty of it and the potential of it and the comfort in it and the security in it and all the amazing things that you can do as you get older as a woman that mean that, and I suspect this is generally across the board, there is no 47-year-old woman, I'm 47, but whatever age you are in the room who would ever go back and be 16 again. Like, you yes. just would not. <laughs> And that's what we need to tell them. It is that old motto. It gets better, and it is amazing. It is an amazing job to be a woman. I love men. I I have had sex with them. They are my friends. (laughs) But I would not want to be one. Like, this is awesome. We have multiple orgasms. Like, we can make babies grow and come out of our bums. I think that's what happened. Like, kind of... (laughs) You know, we are the future with a half of the population that still hasn't yet had a chance to tell all of our stories and see exactly how we would rule the world if we got a fucking chance. Like, this is amazing.
0: I'm going to ask you about it later, but your next book is about men. I'm going to ask you about that later, (laughs) because we're going to move on to your second failure, which is that when you first started writing, you decided you wanted to be a hot young gunslinger, I assassinate people in print. Right. And I'm so glad you've chosen to talk about this because I had exactly the same thing. Right.
1: So where did you get that idea from? Well, I suspect in the same way that you did, Elizabeth. Print media was dominated by men... And the men who were most celebrated were the ones who were just like biting and dark and would take someone down. The pieces that you'd be talking about would be like, oh, did you see that interview where, you know, he took him down? Did you see that review where kind of, you know, so-and-so was eviscerated? If you read A.A. Gill, Have you seen Charlie Brooker, Have you seen what Clive James had, Clive James has described Arnold Schwarzenegger, Have you seen what Martin Amos has said about Philip Roth, it was all about men attacking men. So you go, okay, well, if I want to be in this industry, if I want to be a writer, it's all about men shitting on other men and men assassinating each other and, but doing it in a witty and amazing way. And I want to be a writer and this is the only place I can do it and that's the game, so I will play the game. And as a, one of the rare women in this industry, if I want to do well, I have to do it better than the men. However cunty the men are, I need to be five times cuntier. Like that's how I, will, how I will make my way in the world. So when I started working for the music press... You know, I turned up at Melody Maker. I was 16 years old. I was wearing a giant hat because I, I was working under the presumption that wearing a hat would make my body look smaller and it would be an thinning process. It's the Nicole Ritchie approach to massive handbags. Literally, yes. yes, yeah. <laughs> One large accessory will take a stone off you, yeah. I'm not sure what the science is, but that's what we believed in the 90s. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and I was a virgin. I had never been kissed. I had applied for a job as a music journalist and I... Owned no albums and no music <laughs> we didn't listen to the radio in our house because my dad didn't like modern music and I probably knew about 20 bands tops I knew everything about the Beatles I knew everything about Stevie Wonder I knew whatever was on the best of Simon and Garfunkel um, and that was it and musicals. So the first review that I wrote for Melody Maker, I had to go to the library and order some current music. I, uh, I ordered a Happy Mondays album, because I'd heard that was quite good, and I wrote a review of that, and I knew that you had to send more than one review, so for the second review, I reviewed the soundtrack of Annie. And... That was so sweet. Yeah. I knew nothing, I literally didn't know anything about music, but that was the one place I knew that you didn't have to like, have gone to university or to school, I didn't go to school, I didn't go to university, and so I knew it was. I knew the music press was a place where you could send a review and if they liked it, they printed it. So that was where I could get a job. And so you had to write about music if you wanted to be a writer. So it was like, okay, well, I'll review any music I've got. I mean, I, I would have reviewed a jingle off an advert if I would had to, I just wanted that job. And when I walked into that office, everyone else was like, kind of like a cool man. A lot of them were wearing leather jackets. I knew that it would be a grown-up environment with grown-ups in, so I'd carefully bought a packet of silk cut the night, day before, and I'd bought a bottle of Thunderbird 2020, drink for children that they used to sell in the 90s. And I went into the office, and I sat down at the editorial meeting, and I lit a cigarette, and I took a swig from the bottle. And it was 11 o'clock in the morning, and... <laughs> Everyone looked at me like, what the fuck is going on here? But I literally didn't know any other way to be a grown-up other than smoking a cigarette and drinking some alcohol. It was like, I need to pretend to be a grown-up now. And then I started writing about bands, and at the beginning, you know, the first gig I ever went to was the first gig I reviewed. Like, kind of like I'd literally never seen a gig before, so my review was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. (laughs) LAUGHTER go in a room and there are people and there is a <laughs> band and they're doing it all there and it's just amazing and so i was very overexcited about everything i reviewed and it became apparent within six months that that was not how you progressed the people who were getting the big reviews were the ones that were going and like assassinating bands so famously one of the writers at Melody maker did a terrible review of u2 when they were on tour he absolutely obliterated them in print and bono sent that writer a knife covered in blood in a box to the office. Bono? Yeah. Wow, you wouldn't expect that of Bono, Yeah, would you? and just, I think it was really funny. He was just going, I've just pulled this from my heart, like oh. kind of like, I will present it to you. And to me, that was like, Bono was kind of going, well, that's the game, I found it funny. Like, now you've got a free knife. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, after six months, I've not progressed. Okay, I've got to step it up a gear. I will be the biggest asshole on this paper. I am going to destroy everyone. That's what a hip young gunslinger does. And so I just went about being, you know, it was always very funny, mm. but it was far too much. It was horrible. And it peaked in doing a review of a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin, yes. um, who were from the Stanbridge area. They were just a bunch of guys in a band. And the format of the album review was that it was the funeral of the lead singer and I was the priest officiating over his burial, and I was throwing the earth onto his dead face and listing all the reasons why he died from being so shit. Wow. <laughs> okay. Did, did he send you a coffin? Well, I mean, it was so, so the review was printed, and the next day it was the editorial meeting. So I came down from Wolverhampton. I'm still a virgin, I'm still living in Wolverhampton with my parents. So I still don't really know anything about music. I go into the office with my cigarette and my bottle of Jack Daniels now, <laughs> waiting for everyone to be like, Whoa, you went there, you did it. And this lovely man wearing a cardigan who I'd seen sort of shuffling around the office just sort of looked at me and went, I don't know, I was a bit I was off. I was a bit. No, don't think that's you. That man is now my husband. (laughs) Ah,
2: (laughs)
0: Oh, plot twist. Yes. I didn't know that that was coming. (laughs) No, I know.
1: And he was totally right because I turned up on the paper and I was this cheerful girl in love with music. The reason that I was there was because I loved all this music and I wanted to write. And in six months, I turned into this poisonous person, destroying everyone. And also, the job of giving yourself the job of destroying people who were making music like, fair enough if you're writing, like, really catty reviews of Nazis, but, like, these are... They were just some boys from Stambridge trying to earn some coin by, like, making songs that people liked. It was just absolutely extraordinary to me that of all the people and all the jobs that I'd set myself was destroying something. And then 20 years later, so this was the being a going on a newspaper and then being a terrible person and realizing maybe you've made a mistake was the plot of the film that I wrote, um, How to Build a Girl. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to make that film, other than they were paying me and asked me to and who's going to say no, (laughs) is because I realized that what happened to me at the age of 16, in that I had a national platform in which to write my opinions and eviscerate people, was what every 16-year-old in the world can do now because that's what social media is. And that tends to be the pattern that we have. You see time and time again. When people go on social media, you turn up, and you, know, so you go and look at people's accounts, and like, their first post is like, oh, does this thing work? Doing my first tweet, here's my breakfast. Hi, guys. And then over six months, usually a week later when someone's gone, your breakfast looks shit, then they'll start sort of hitting back. And then six months later down the tunnel, everybody's just turned into Charlie Brooker 10 years ago and everyone's just stabbing everybody. And like, you're you're being a hot young gunslinger. And the thing that I've realised, having sat on social media for 10 years and seeing this happen, particularly in progressive movements like in feminism and anti-racism, anti-Semitism and stuff, is that if you go on social media and your whole thing is that you want to destroy someone even if it's someone from your own side, but you think they're doing feminism wrong, saying, you see someone doing feminism wrong and you go online and you decide to destroy them because they're doing feminism badly, and you put all this effort into it, and maybe it works, and maybe you destroy that feminist, and kind of like they're crushed and they withdraw and they stop doing stuff, then you still have to do the second part of the job, which is presumably to show how you would do feminism better. You've now got to go and make the effort of giving a better alternative to the one that you thought was so bad, And what I've realized is that why don't you miss out that whole first part where you're spending all this energy destroying someone that you don't agree with and just go straight to the second part, which is brilliant and joyful and in which no one gets hurt, where you just make the better alternative. I won't disagree with anyone on social media now. I don't attack anyone. I don't criticize anyone. Because it's like, okay, well, if that's working for someone, that's fine. If I think you're doing a bad job, I will simply do something better. And then we have market forces, and we have increased the lexicon. And no one's got hurt. And I have saved so much energy (laughs) and so much bile. And I will not, as I had to when I was 16 compile a list of all the bands that I'd slagged off in the press and write letters to every single one of them going, I am so sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry. I'd heard that the, uh, the mother of the lead singer of Ned's Atomic Dustbin had cried when she'd read oh, that review. Helen. I had to send her a really long letter going, I'm oh, so sorry. It's so
0: lovely that you did that. And I, you've made something, again, so deep out of what was a very funny anecdote. <laughs> And my experience is going to be nowhere near as profound. But when I I started out in journalism and I was on the Londoner Star and the Evening Standard and I was desperate to be a news reporter and then I became a news reporter and I was desperate to write features and I got a chance to write interviews for six months, I was covering someone's maternity leave, and I did exactly the same thing. Yeah. I thought, because that was the era of the great Lynn Barber, who is this incredible writer, yeah. and who often has an acerbic
1: turn of phrase. Barber of Fleet Street, they call her, yes. because she would go in and destroy yes. people, yes.
0: And I think because I didn't know myself, and I didn't trust my own voice because I didn't know what it was. I tried to assume other people's voices, and I just ended up being really mean. Right. And and it stuck with me, and I also have apologised to the people that I was mean to, apart from one who didn't deserve it. Who? Who? (laughs) Who? Go on. Paolo Coelho is not a nice person. Who's that? Uh, He wrote The Alchemist. Oh, God, yes. Yes. Oh, right. Well, my experience of him... Well, my... (laughs) Maybe I'll tell you afterwards. (laughs) I love the... What the God I'm kind of like... He just told me about... He's now my enemy. He, okay, he fine. He's <laughs> my enemy. Tell me why I wasn't we must even that ba- I, actually just, I wasn't that mean about him. I just mm. wrote his quotes. Yeah. Um, one of the <laughs> things that he said was about his own path to spiritual enlightenment was about very much listening to what he wanted mm-hmm. to the expense of what other people wanted. And he gave this example, and he meant it as an example of his spiritual depth. He said, I was, I was sitting on a plane waiting to take off from Brazil to London, and I just felt my spirit calling me to have a cigarette. I just had to have a cigarette. That's what my spirit was telling me I needed to do. (laughs) And so I said, I, I lit up, I lit up in the airplane, and then the air steward came across and said, no, you're not allowed to smoke on the airplane. And I was so offended, and my spirit was so unsettled, I said, "Well, fuck you," because I want to smoke a cigarette. And he caused such a ruckus that they had to escort him off the plane so that he could smoke a cigarette on the tarmac, thereby delaying the entire flight for everyone else on that Whoa. flight. And he was saying to me because he was proud of that story because he was like, "I listened to what my spirit was telling me." I was like, "You, just, you listened to what your you nicotine a,
1: addiction was you started, telling you." Just wanted you. A nicotine hit. That wasn't God. Choose that was silk
0: cut. <laughs> So, apart from Adequelo, I have, I have, I have
1: apologised wow. to other people. I can't believe you weren't going to tell that anecdote. I mean, <laughs> I mean aside from the fact that you can just put in a bulging file just called men, that is just yes. absolutely extraordinary. Yes. We love the
0: men here. Exactly. Not all um, men, no. But, so, other than that, yeah. what I realise the older that I've got... And I'm so grateful I've realized this, is that there is such power in vulnerability and in being nice. Mm. And that's where all of this has come from, how to fail, because actually I got really tired of doing that because those interviews weren't about the people I was talking to. They were about how I could create a voice for myself that wasn't me. And so having this kind of conversation with you and seeing you in your courageous vulnerability is such a beautiful gift for me. And that comes about because we're being
1: nice. Well, I mean, there's two things. Like, first of all, like, the greatest gift you can give yourself every night is to go to bed and go, God, I wasn't an asshole today. Like, kind of (laughs) like, if you've ever had problems with insomnia or just being a very sweaty person, whatever it is, anxiety... (laughs) Just the gift that you give yourself by going, No, at every chance I had today, I was pleasant. And or at the very worst, not obstructive to others' happiness. Like kind of like, you know, yeah. I was a neutral presence. Things flowed through me. Maybe I didn't push them, but I did not obstruct them. You know, that's the, you know, bear in minute. It's a massive favor to do to yourself. And secondly, you know, hack talk for a minute. When you're interviewing someone, They are giving you, you know, meat and energy and substance. They're giving you a part of their life that you're being paid for. They're not being paid for it when you're doing promo. And I always try to remember to be very respectful of that because, A, I'm being paid to do this and they are not. B, if they are trusting me to tell me a secret or something tender or vulnerable, like, you have to be respectful of that. And thirdly, they are going to be answering questions about whatever you've asked them about, probably for the rest of their lives if you have some big contentious argument or get something out of them or they give you something you know, vulnerable or exclusive, they'll be answering questions about that for the next 20 years. You do have a profound effect on other people's lives. And like, when you start off your career, you may not have that luxury, but I now am in the very lucky position where I only interview people that I like. And what I want to do is explain why I think they're great. Because I think this is a really underrated job to give yourself as a communicator, whether it's just tweeting or if you're a journalist or whatever, in conversations that you have with friends is just pointing at things that are awesome
2: mm-hmm. and
1: going, I like this. Yes. And then talking about why you like it. And the best conversations I've ever had in my life are when you meet someone who loves the same thing as you and you're trying to figure out why you love it. Yeah. Why is Paul the best Beatle? He is. You know, <laughs> why... Why is butter the greatest thing that you can have in the fridge? It yeah. is like kind of like, and you're just yeah. you're there three hours later, just like so full yeah. of excitement and joy. Elizabeth Gilbert calls it being an enthusiast. There are there
0: are loads of cynics in the world. Like yes. actually, sometimes it's the braver choice to be an enthusiast. There's a final failure here, and I want to get onto it because I also want to leave enough time for a Q&A because mm. I know that there'll be so many people here who want to pepper you with their questions. But your, your final failure made me sad. Mm. Your final failure is that when you were a child and a teenager, not being in any way beautiful or thin. Yes. Now... Does that genuinely feel like a failure now, or is it that it felt like a failure
1: then? Not now. Now it feels like a massive gift. But at the time, I was aware... So I was born in 1975, so I'm sort of like 1985, I'm 10, I'm heading towards puberty. And I knew what the job of being a teenage girl was, and that it's to be hot and sexy. That's what you have to do at some point when you're a teenage girl. You have to be hot and sexy. You might not start off hot and sexy, but at some point you have to have your makeover and you will be hot and sexy. Mm. Every woman's movie, every movie for a woman has a makeover scene, the point where your life changes and suddenly you are hot and sexy and like kind of that's where your life changes. So you know, I, I knew that you know, at the age of 10, I was, you know, I was very fat, mono-brow, my hair was down to here in plaits, we were very poor so I only had one outfit of clothing which was a shirt of my dad's and a skirt I'd bought from a jumble sale and I didn't have a coat, I wore a dressing gown. And so I would sort of look at this in the mirror and sort of go, wow, okay, well, it's going to be difficult to get a makeover out of this because I have no stuff, I have no money, I don't have things, you know, I don't have deodorant or makeup. We had felt tips, so every so often we'd sort of draw lipstick onto our mouths with felt tips and colour in our eyes blue because it was 1985. Um, But, yeah, so it was like, okay, not beautiful and sexy now, but I will have to be at some point, because otherwise what is the point of a teenage girl? And I, I signally failed to do that at any point. Like, I kind know of there was a massive feeling of... And now at the age of 47, the narrative that I hear so much from women's... It, and I'm not sure it's so much it's from actual women, but the narrative that you see in movies and when people are writing often, they go... As you get older, it just becomes so much more disappointing because everything slides down and you become invisible and people stop catcalling you and you, you realise how beautiful you were when you were young and how, you know, sadly and inevitably you are becoming sort of more faded and tired and less hot and sexy. And the gift that I've been given for just looking like a bag of shit when I was a teenage girl is that everything's been uphill since then. Like, kind of... <laughs> It's, it's not that, that I've got a completely reverse narrative, like kind of things have literally got better and better, because I found some nice clothes, and I learned how to exercise and what to eat, and I got eyeliner, and I dyed my hair, and like constructed a version of myself that was on the outside, that was how I felt on the inside. Mm-hmm. But I knew absolutely that I'd failed at being a teenage girl. The fear that any young girl has when she goes down the street, I hear... Is that if you go past some men or some teenage boys or some builders or a man in a van, is that they will shout, all right, sweet tits, or, you know, some kind of sexual sort of come on at you, which never work, by the way, if anyone's still thinking of doing that. We don't, no one ever, when they were getting married, went. And how we met was that Lee <laughs> leant out of the van and shouted, I'd give that a poke, and now here we are. Like, that just doesn't work as a tactic. But I knew that even that wasn't on the cards. Even that terrible moment, kind of when you're 13 and the first time someone shouts "sweet tits" at you, I knew even that wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. because all I had shouted at me by any man that noticed me was, and this is where we'll test the age of the room here, "all right, grot bags." <gasps> I don't. So if, okay, we can see there's yeah. okay age-wise. So "grot bags" <laughs> was a witch. On, on the show Rudd Hull and Emu's Pink Windmill, which is a children's TV show, and Gropp was just a massive, fat, green-faced witch uh, with curly hair, and very much not who I wanted to be at that point. Now, I think Grot Bags is fucking awesome. She was... She's uh, making the ale. Yep, yeah, exactly. She's the nail wife. Like, Grot Bags is awesome, but it's not what you wanted to hear when you were 13. So... I couldn't work out how I was going to be an adult because I couldn't see any women that looked like me. I couldn't see any girls that looked like me. I couldn't see them in films or TV. I could find a couple in 19th century literature, like when Jane Eyre talks about being kind of poor and ugly and weird and meek. I kind of, I related to her hugely. But mainly the, the only female role models that I had were in cartoons, like kind of, you know, and, and puppets. Like Miss Piggy, I related to her. If anyone's watched the Disney animated version of Robin Hood, uh, there's a character called Madame Cluck, who's a very big jolly hen. I was like, that's a viable. I could do that. I could <laughs> but be Madame Cluck. Did you feel insecure? Oh, God, not even insecure. Just, like, absolutely like i had no options like like no just fight. like uh, uh, what can i do like i'm that uh, this this will not work cause i have no options where can i go what can i do I, I am not a teenage girl so what else could i be
0: and do you feel that that led you to believe that you needed to earn your place that you needed to do something else because you couldn't exist on your looks. This so it, is your internal monologue.
1: Yeah. So I knew I wasn't a teenage girl. because the teenage girls, like, so you've got to remember as well, that I wasn't going to school because our parents home educated us and we weren't allowed to have friends and they weren't, no one was allowed to come to the house. So I knew no one of my age. I wasn't seeing actual real people. All I could see was what was on TV and movies. And you're the oldest of eight. And so the oldest you weren't seeing eight. anyone older than you in no, the same age range. I was the first yeah. one to go through puberty. And puberty was seen as a very shameful thing in our house. Like as I write in How to Be a Woman, sort of you would have a bath upstairs, everyone shared the same bath water, so I sort of like, after my dad and my mum, and like maybe the babies, I would then get in, and then you'd come downstairs and sit in front of the fire with a towel, because that was the only warm place, the day that I came down there at 13 to get warm by the fire, and my mum went, is that a pube? Mm. <laughs> is that a pubic hair, Kate? Oh, you're turning into a little lady, Like kind of like I was the first one to go through puberty, and that's not the way that you wanted to start. But so yeah, all the girls that I was seeing were on TV and in movies, and they wore pink rah skirts, and they were all called Becky, and they had blonde hair, and they roller-skated around, and they went out with boys called Brad, and they worried about the prom, and that was about the extent of their lives, and so I found that very unrelatable.
0: <laughs> so is that, do you think that's why you started
1: writing? But this is the beautiful gift. This is why now I'm not sad about this, because I was so absolutely excluded from society and so absolutely not allowed to think that I was even really a human, let alone a teenage girl, that it was like, well, what am I? You know, and I was absolutely totally alienated from my body. I literally had to pretend it didn't exist. So I was like, well, I'm just a a brain in a jar and it's, it's attached to this. This is what walks it around, but I'm just a brain in a jar and all I can do now is just observe things and try and work things out. And there's actually, I now see, it was almost like becoming a hermit or something, or going on like kind of a retreat or looking down at Earth from space, because if you're so absolutely out of the game of being a human being, if you're so absolutely not included with what is normal, then your eyes become gigantic and your ears become gigantic, you're just receiving stuff. And not interacting with any human beings or feeling any worth just means that you're suddenly gathering all this knowledge. You're just watching, watching, watching for 10 years what everybody else is doing and trying to work out anything that might be relevant to you, trying to figure out people. So that was, you know, I now see that gave me a massive head start because, like, so, you know, by the time I started writing, I just, all I'd done was watch people and absorb stuff. I had transmitted nothing into the world. I had not existed. I had not interacted with anyone. And the first thing I ever did where I was outputting rather than inputting was when I wrote my first book. And that was why writing was like, that's the addiction that started then that has never ended. Because it was like, oh wow, I'm in control of this. doesn't matter what I look like just you know everything that was wrong that i was just watching things is now this astonishing power i've got thousands of hours of observations to share about people i've got thousands of thoughts i've been watching you all now i now i can do it
0: so interesting and we're so grateful that you do what would we do without you before we get on to the audience q a that deserves a pause Before we get on to the audience Q&A, I want to ask you quickly about your next
1: book. Yes. Men. <laughs> men. Um, so, A primer. writing about feminism and women and girls for 10 years, I talk about women, I talk about the feminism, I talk about the women and the feminism, and then when I would do an event, there would be questions, and either the first or second question would be, yeah, okay, women, girls, but what about the men? And for the first five years I was like, I don't care, like, kind of, my specialist subject is women. I can't do everything, I'm doing the women. Like the ultimate irony of feminism would be if women having solved the problems of women then had to solve the problems of men, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then I just started to think, well, yeah, maybe, because what I hear from young men all the time is that they think now, and they truly believe this and they are angered and scared by this, is that it's easier to be a young woman now than it is to be a young man. And at the beginning, I was like, mm, no, it's not. I've got some things to tell you. But I think they are right, because women have feminism. We have this crowd-sourced, 100-year-old, astonishingly effective transformation machine that has taken us from the property of men, unable to vote, unable to own property, unable to stand for office, unable to wear trousers, unable to smoke cigarettes, without contraception, unable to talk about sex, uneducated, to people who rule countries and are going into space and can talk about sex and are creative and astonishing. And that's in 100 years because of feminism. We have changed utterly. A a woman 120 years ago would not recognize our lives now. In the same time span, nothing has changed for men. Men's lives are exactly the same as they were, give or take a bowler hat or a cummerbund, (laughs) 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 to what their grandfather's lives were like. The idea of what a woman is has expanded and become so exciting and joyful. The idea of what a boy or a man is has not expanded at all and is not filled with joy, it's filled with fear. So, I wanted to basically pay men the favour back for all the things we've stolen from their culture and go, here's a thing you can have from female culture, feminism. It's about talking about your problems. It's about going, am I happy with who I am? what would I like to change? How would I like to expand? What are the skills that I need to learn? How do I need to change the world in order to be happy? What do we actually want men to be? Let's ask the question, what is a man? So yeah, that's the next book, and I'm just really, really excited about it. I haven't been this excited about a book since How to Be a Woman, because like, wow. I just don't think anyone's talking about boys and men at the moment, and if you solve the problems of boys and men, you also solve a lot of the problems, let's face it, of girls and women. So I think the second part of feminism yeah. is
0: that... Uh, what, what a note to end on I can't wait to read it Catelyn Moran I grew up in awe of you I've read you all of my adult life but in person you have exceeded all my wildest dreams I
1: cannot thank you enough oh dude you know the only reason I did this is because I wanted to meet you let's get that on tape literally we recorded that I never leave the house so the only way I get to meet people whose writing I love and admire is if they just finally ask me to talk to them on stage so this is really weird (laughs) but like kind of this is kind of like friend dating here like this is our this is our meet cute I finally get to meet her and just thank you so much for everything you do you are so amazing you're amazing
0: next time we will do it without an audience Callie Moran oh thank you thank you thank you sorry I just want
1: to say before the Q&A starts I've got a question to ask Elizabeth oh yeah are you not drinking the rest of that champagne
0: (laughs) well I am (laughs) but you can I was going to but you deserve it more Do you want to go halves? Hang on. No, no, no. You 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 take it. I I feel like just need a little part. Okay. Look at that feminism in action. Yeah. Fifty for cheers. Share the pie. Grow the pie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we do have some roving mics. Yes, the mic is while the mics travelling there. Can we just do a round of applause for Elizabeth's boots? Aren't they amazing? (laughs) Fuck (laughs) it. Zara. Yeah, fast fashion, but I intend to wear them a lot, so sustainable. Some good boot, way. man.
2: Thank you. Well,
1: <laughs> hello. Uh, Hi. Um, I think you're amazing. Oh, your thank you. You're amazing. I love this Fantastic. question. Thank you very much. No <laughs> Less a question,
0: more of an observation. Yeah. I just wondered, with everything you've been through,
1: and everything you talk about, you you show huge vulnerability as well as your strength. But do you like yourself? Oh God. Oh, wow. I really, really do. <laughs>
0: yes. That is a revolutionary thing for a woman to say.
2: Well,
1: uh-huh. yeah. I wrote, I wrote a column for the Times about four months ago now, and the first paragraph that is going, which is true, it's taken me ten years to screw up the courage to write this column, and the column is this: I think I'm really hot. You are. And the second paragraph is: You have to understand. I'm not saying this in a kind of like, you know, hierarchy. I'm hotter than you. Fuck all of you. You plain the bitches. It's just to let women know that that is a possible thought for you to have. There is literally no reason why I should think I am hot, like, or, or, you know, or why any woman shouldn't think they are hot. Like, kind of, you just have to make that choice. Because as the system is at the moment, no woman thinks they're beautiful. If you read an interview with all the most beautiful women in the world, Scarlett Johansson's going, I've got really weird elbows, and Sharon Stone's going, my calves make me sad, and kind of, you know... I literally I spent two days researching this I have not found a single one of the most beautiful women in the world who will actually go yeah I'm pretty fucking decent and I like this they just everyone has to and first of all that taps into the fact that every woman is not allowed to love themselves and is not allowed to be strong and powerful we all have to hate ourselves a tiny delicious 10% like kind of you know sort of like if someone's praising you for doing something you have to go oh yeah no I did that but you know but I'm actually an idiot and I keep falling over and I kind of <laughs> yeah I actually feel really bad about my head. Like we think that compliments make us fat. I think that kind of mm-hmm. that they're made of like bone marrow and cream, and if we <laughs> eat them, we'll become disgusting. And compliments are fatty, and they are made of bone marrow and cream, and they're delicious. And you need to eat them. They are nutritious. You need them for your brain. Like women, the b- biggest thing that I wish I could teach young women and girls is to accept a compliment. Next time someone sends something to you, just go thank you. That is, that is correct. Don't go, oh no, (laughs) oh God, I'm kicking your compliments away. Please don't do this, it agonizes me. And secondly, if you do not make the decision to say, I am beautiful, this is my body, this is my face, this is what I'm gonna have for the rest of my life, I need to become friends with it and really like it, then what you're presumably doing is waiting for someone else to tell you you're beautiful. And if you're a straight girl, it's you're waiting for a boy to come and tell you you're beautiful. Why would you leave that in the hands of someone else? Like you wouldn't ask, you know, or, you know, or if, you, you know, if you're queer, like kind of a girl, you wouldn't wait for a girl or a boy to come and tell you you should like this music. You wouldn't wait for a boy or girl to come and tell you you're a cat person or a dog person. You wouldn't wait for someone to come and say this is how you should decorate your house. Why would you leave one of the most important opinions you're ever going to have, which is whether or not you love yourself and think you're fucking fantastic, to some other dickwad? Like, honestly, like, that's, that's not a good system. Like, we have to be able to do that for ourselves. We need to self-gift just thinking we're awesome. Because you're not Nazis. You haven't stamped on a hen. Like, you know...
2: <laughs> you're not
1: responsible for climate change. Well, you're human-shaped, and, like, you're facing the right way, and you've put on a thing that you like. That's enough. You look fucking amazing. Like, you know... I love that.
0: I, I particularly love the comparison of someone coming to tell you whether you're a cat or a dog person, because I really, my hackles raised there. Oh, I was yes. like, if anyone tried to tell me I was primarily a dog person... Yes. So I, I love all animals, Good. but, you know, yeah. well, You're wrong, but dogs it, are better, but uh, yes. Well, no, I, okay. This is another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. We're going no, up we'll to the balcony
1: now, yeah. so if anyone has a question up in the balcony... But just as a kicker to that, a woman's right to choose extends to everything from abortion to choosing to decide <laughs> you are beautiful. It's <laughs> a choice. You have to choose this thing. Yeah. It's a very nice venue, this, isn't it's it? It's really beautiful, isn't it? It's like being inside a beautiful wedding cake. Yes.
2: Hi. Hi, David. Um, any ideas on balancing being an enthusiast and being kind and nice against people-pleasing?
0: Okay. Balancing being an enthusiast against people-pleasing kind of t- that, or with yeah, people-pleasing. Yeah, kind of turning
1: into people-pleasing sometimes. Yes,
0: because you can't always be nice. Nay.
1: No. But what I would say is that, like, kind of like being a people-pleasing, as long as you've So long as you're also pleasing yourself, then being a people-pleaser isn't a bad thing. Like, kind of like, it's it's fine to want to make the people around you happy. It's fine to want to create something that delights someone else. It's fine to act in a way that makes someone else feel happy. If it's at the expense of your own happiness, if you're not telling the truth, if you're lying, if you're twisting yourself up, then that's where people-pleasing becomes toxic. And you do see that a lot, particularly in women. It's a very female trait. But to be a people-pleaser and also a self-pleaser, so long as those two things are balanced, then, you know, I, I think people pleasing away so long as you're not lying so long as you're not kind of giving people more than you're giving yourself then i delight in the idea of people pleasing i think you know there aren't many people particularly as i write to women generally yeah you know, there aren't many people who want to please women like kind of like there aren't many people who like burst into a room and go you know what i'm going to make all you middle-aged women really happy right now it just doesn't really happen culturally so you know i'm very yeah. happy to do that
0: i think so as a recovering people pleaser myself I think I realised that for years and years and years, I was outsourcing my sense of self to other people's opinions of me. Mm. And I was masking that as people-pleasing and being nice. But actually, all of that time was wasted because I could have been getting to know myself, which is really what you're saying. Yes. And so I think if you think of it like that, it's not being unkind. It's getting to know yourself first, which actually ends up being a very generous act. Because when you know yourself and you say a yes, you can commit to that yes. And when you say a no, it's for a good reason and people respect it. And the last thing I would say is, again, I quoted my best friend twice tonight, but some of you might know she's an amazing therapist. And she talks about boundaries being a point of connection. There's actually setting a boundary. There has to be a point of connection between the two of you. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it kind of serves both of you both parties and ends up bringing you closer because you're both clear about who the other person is and that's really
1: helped me that's so true and also best way you can please other people is when you know who you are and what you're pleasing people with is just you yeah like kind of like when you are absolutely settled and joyful in yourself and happy then what you're pleasing people with is is basically you yeah so that's why you know it's you know oxygen masks onto you first for you please, uh, pass the pleasing oxygen on to others.
0: Oh, before your palo Quelo getting off the plane altogether and just smoking your yes, fist. the fag. <laughs> fuck, <laughs> fuck the oxygen masks.
1: See, now I've had a glass and a half of champagne I'm like, he had a point. Like, kind of like, why... <laughs> Like, like, if he was pleasing in the himself. Nin- in the 90s, right? <laughs> you could just draw that curtain on a plane, and that kept all the fags in the smoking area, and everyone oh, loved the good old days. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. okay, we're going back down to the stalls now. I'm going to call no. him and say that
1: you were wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you, but I, I'm, I'll come to you later, I promise, because I... Yes, just there. I feel like I have to go further back because otherwise it's just like I'm favouring the front rows okay.
2: um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks so much it was such a super evening yeah. I just wanted to ask, so you spoke about how you didn't get promoted doing kind of nice reviews mm. and then also struggled after you did your aggressive reviews for that band, so how can we go far with traditional feminine traits of like
0: compassion and things like that because all the great female leaders that I see they do adopt a lot of like, masculine energy, which is great for them. And I'm not saying every single woman has to have these feminine traits, but how can we make them seem as valued as masculine
1: traits? That's such a fucking great question. Well done. Um, <laughs> so the problem I had at Manage Maker was that it was a paper run by men that was mainly read by men. And so when I realised that I just couldn't write man-pleasing, horrible things anymore, and they wanted to write pleasing, feminine things somewhere else, I just had to go somewhere else where so I can do that. And, you know, that was diff- I was very lucky. It was very difficult in those days because there weren't many women in journalism. There weren't many sort of women, even at that point, who were section editors and stuff. But I was very lucky that I found somewhere. The big revelation that I had a long time ago, and I think it's maybe one that Liz Truss hasn't had yet, <laughs> is... <laughs> What she going to say? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it's that you can't grow a pie. That's <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> but you can't grow a pie. You can't, no, grow a pie. can't grow a pie. How would you grow a pie? Anyway... Um, It took me until I was in my 30s to realize, I still had in my head, that the cool audience was the men, and that I would have to be more mannish, and write male things, and write in a male way, because that was who was in charge, and that was who was buying papers, and that was... Those are the people that it was best to please. You were doing your best if you made men laugh. As a woman, if you've done the thing of making men like what you do, fucking hell, okay, you must be amazing. And then sort of when I got to about 30, I just had this, this shift in revelation. It was like a, a beautiful freedom in my head. I was like, I could, could spend the rest of my life writing in a female way, being nice, doing all this female stuff, and only being read by women. And that is still 52% of the population. And they are the people I want to talk to. Like, kind of like, if the, if the sacrifice is that the cool boys with power never care about anything I do again and never want to know who I am, and it's only women... That's amazing. That's incredible. I suddenly see the value in that audience. And this was like 20 years ago before we've had this big wave of feminism now and so many amazing female authors and writers and pop stars and movie makers, where it just seemed to be an astonishingly revelatory thought going, even though no one's doing anything for them and we never hear about a female audience, that's enough. And I'm interested in that. I don't know what they want. I know how to please men. I've, I've learned all the skills to do that how would I please women? What do they want? What what are they not getting? Like, kind of like, I'm happy for them to be my guys. And it was the moment where finally the last bit of internalised misogynism sort of flipped in my head and I stopped thinking it was inherently better to write like a man and please a male audience and where I was just like, okay, if they don't come, they don't come. I'll go to the ladies. That's... I'm team tits from now on. (laughs) Thank you. That's a brilliant
0: question. Thank you. We're going to go up to the balcony again.
2: Yes, there is someone there in a black top hello Hi. I'd love to know what you think about female friendships particularly, I think, <laughs> it's almost like particularly I've planted I have think it. Um, during that kind of transition period from like 20s where you're I don't know maybe you're living together and you're going out together and most of you are single and then you know as you enter your 30s some might settle down get married have children others may not People's careers go in different directions. I'd just like to know your thoughts about female friendships. Well, I'm I'm going to be brief
1: on this because I want to throw to Elizabeth because this is your specialist subject. I again had, because so many of my experiences um, are not typical. So I just, having not gone to school, then working in a male dominated industry, and then working at home and having my first child at 24, I didn't have really any female friends until I got into like my mid 30s. Mm. And now, they are the best people I know, and we hold each other together. But I was still very much like... When you'd go to a party in the 90s, the fun was at the men's end of the table, and they'd be like, putting a piece of cheese on a fork and being really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that was genuinely great comedy content in the 90s, whereas, whereas at the other end of the table, it'd be the women, and they'd all be sitting around and crying and going, my fucking mother, and like kind of like... And, <laughs> and crying... And at that point, I was like, I want to be on the fun cheese end. I don't want to be in like womb over here. Fuck this shit. And then I had some problems with my mother and my womb. And I was like, now I get the value of that end of the table. I'm going to be down there. So I've, I've come late to female friendship, but um, I'm a very, very passionate convert because now my coven of women... like I mean, we, we're on, on WhatsApp and we're literally talking to each other constantly. Like, kind of like it's... I now get it. But you are the female friendship expert, I think. Well,
0: thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm, I don't think I am yet, but I have written a book about friendship. I think so that qualifies as an expert. Right. But who knows if it's any good? It's not out yet. Yeah. But I, I find it really fascinating to write and research friendship and it's something that we're starting to talk about more, but it doesn't have a language, it doesn't have the lexicon. So my aim was to expand the lexicon, as Catlin so brilliantly says. And part of the problem is, is that friendship as a term is so diffuse, it can mean everything and nothing. And I think the other problem is, is that we are taught to believe that friendship, in order to be a successful friendship, has to last forever. Right, yes. And yet there are no conversations about... How we become friends, how we date, whether we need friendship contracts yeah. in the same way that we do have in romantic
1: settings. And there's no plot to a female friendship in the way there is, you know, if you, if you meet a man, and you fall in love with him, and then you're supposed to have children, and then yes. you grow old together. And, like, kind of like, what's the plot of female friendship supposed exactly. to be? Exactly. There's no arc to it. I mean, there is, but we don't talk about it. It's not yes. acknowledged.
0: And I think the other thing is that, that we use moralizing terms. So you're a good friend or a bad friend. Mm-hmm. Like You don't say you're a good spouse. Yes. Or like a, <laughs> and, and so I, my perception now is that friendships are not failures just because they end. And friendships can come to you for a particular reason or a season in your life. And that's often the case with friendships in your twenties. And if you have been taught something through that friendship, if you have experienced joy together, you can always have a relationship with that friendship, even if the friend moves out of your life. And that's the sort of beautiful thing once you realise that you can have a relationship with the memory of it and with the impact that it had on you. So in a way, they all live on in us. And I think that's the thing that we need to get our heads around because we need to stop shaming ourselves when friendships grow in different directions.
1: Just as you were saying that, this is all so true, I can't wait to read this book. Can you say what the title is? Or you yes, it's don't? called Friendaholic. I love that title. Confessions of a Friendship Addict. Yes. Which but as done. you were saying that, I was thinking it's a bit like, because we don't have the lexicon and the framework for understanding female friendships, and I was thinking it's a bit like clothes. Yes. Like You, know, you have, might have one dress that you wear and it turns you into someone else and you just wear it to death for two years and then suddenly yes. it doesn't work. Whereas there are other things, like the pair of shoes that you buy and you're Still wearing them twenty years later, and you never know exactly which ones are going to last forever and which ones you're going to like get rid of. But like permission to steal that metaphor. Steal away, my friend. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) I should just bracket this all by saying friendship is the passion of my life. That's why I wanted to write about it, and I don't know what I would do without my core friends. But I've realised, and I think the pandemic has made us all realise, maybe that that core group of friends is much smaller Mm. than I had kidded myself Mm. it was, and actually the people that. I really need to see and who are nurturing. There's fewer of them, but I trust them more deeply. So that's... I have you coordinate. written about
1: the thing as well that when you first meet a new friend, when you absolutely fall in love with them? Yes. And it is like romantic love. Yes. You are obsessed with them. And, yeah. like, you're just... And, okay. like, you know, what, like, often when I have made female friends, I start talking like them. Like, kind yeah. of like... I just sort of get that kind of slip. I'm kind of like, I'll come back from meeting a new girlfriend and my husband will be like, you're talking a bit weird. Why... Yeah. Why are you Welsh? And I'm like...
2: <laughs> I've just met this
1: amazing woman. She's amazing. She's got everything right. She's just incredible. And then then there's the bit where you kind of like the passion and the kind of almost sexual kind of feelings you have for them slip and you're like, you see them for the... flawed person they are. <laughs> it happens
0: to, oh, I'm just laughing because it's happened to me recently. And yeah. then you're like, You know, you over-romanticise it yes. all and then suddenly you're She's like... She's perfect. Yeah, then suddenly you break up and you're like, oh my God. Yeah.
1: Like, but there's, they're totally. No. Oh God, I can't wait to read I this can't.
0: Book. Oh, well, yeah. I'll send you a proof. Don't you worry. Thank you very much. Quotes That's in the post, absolutely. babe. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, front row. Wait for the microphone. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Here we go. Thank you.
2: Hiya. I was just going to ask because... You mentioned at the start about that point that sort of the younger generation like looks at us and like maybe a bit like, Ugh, meh, like you're not making it that exciting, mm-hmm. and, and we're doing all this great stuff. And I know so many great like thirty year olds, forty year olds, kind of like doing great things. And I just think actually what makes us so great is that we've kind of gone through sort of those tough experiences. And if we we give too much advice and we share too much that actually sort of the 20-something-year-olds that are coming through are going to maybe turn a bit bit like those men that don't grow and develop. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we might get a sort of a generation that actually aren't as well- Rounded. I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily what I think, but I'm intrigued by that. Is that about like TMI, basically?
1: What the we give them too much advice. Too
2: much advice. Actually, they don't really grow through it, so they just kind of take on what we say as fact and don't really fully understand.
0: Thickos. Kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Right? I was just joking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're wonderful. Literally, this. I'm sorry. The crone in me is going. You just have to listen to us. Kind of like. I had to listen to my elders now. You need to listen to yours. That's the privilege that we have. And also, I want to really claim for women the ability to just drone on to a younger generation that might not want to listen in the same way that men have for centuries. Like, that we need to be allowed to be the person in the corner going, rah, 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 in my day. (laughs) If I can't tell my stories about Britpop London in the 90s Mm. to a younger generation, then kind of, you know, they just, they, they need to turn up and do their dues and listen to these stories, so as we remember from when we were younger, you just screen out 90% of what people are saying to you anyway, so, you know, because you're, you're on your phone and you're just not listening, so it's absolutely fine. If 3% of it gets through, which is probably all there is, that's enough to get them going. Yeah,
0: and I think that thing that you said
1: earlier about that 3% that does get through... Yeah. How great if that's about joy. Yes. yes, positive things. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there is that worry that like, older women are just scolding young women and going, it's not like that in my yeah. day, or you're getting feminism wrong, or whatever it is. I'm minded of the fact that we play that game, the name game in my family, where you write the names of famous people and put them in a hat, and then you have to mime them. And I can remember when my brother got Jermaine Greer, the feminist, his physical mime for Jermaine Greer, and basically uh-huh. all of feminism was to go like this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: For, for people who are listening to this podcast, oh, sorry, yeah. and it goes like... <laughs> <laughs> Catelyn did a mime of two enormous breasts and then a
1: finger-wagging... No, 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 Mime no, no, of no. disapprovement. So basically, that's feminism and all older women. They're just women who are just going, no, 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 you've got everything wrong. And like, kind of... I've got a really important question to ask the audience. Lady three doors down who's wearing the stripy tank top, where is yes. that from? It's fucking lovely. So great. <laughs> just shout out to brand, I just need to go online. We're wise. wise. With the white y- yes. wise. Okay, very, very nice. <laughs> okay, cool. And that's you sorted for some sponsorship for the next one.
2: I was literally want, about yes. to say that. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> okay,
0: I actually am going to come to you in the roll neck in the second no. row back. Um, Thanks. So, my question to you is out of all your life experience and from your three failures, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned? Oh, I mean, that's a great bloody question. Wow, okay. Um,
1: yeah. why- is it about the whys? tank top (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's a solid tip and i will be on that website tomorrow um i've got so many white wine doesn't get red wine out of a white top you do need laundry bleach for that um never if you get offered the chance to travel business class or first class on a plane ever accept it because unless you can do it for the rest of your life it will ruin all (laughs) travel for you There's a reason why every so often they give you those free upgrades, because once you've sat on the big chair and, like, it's turned into a bed and you've tucked up in a duvet and flown to L.A., the next time you have to fly economy, you just want to kill yourself. It's just (laughs) horrible. What else have I learnt? Oh, uh, never trust a man who wants to read you poetry or wears a hat. Um, That's very important. Uh, What,
0: What if the hat is part of a uniform?
1: Oh, that's okay. That's cosplay. Like, okay. Look, anything that the men in Magic Mike XXL have done, that's fine. So if they... Okay. That's fine. What do you think about the value of mistakes? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what do you think about Magic Mike XXL? (laughs) I was much more... I mean, obviously, that's
0: an easy love. The
1: thing I love most about Magic Mike XXL is that in Andy McDowell's character, they have dared for the first time to have a female character who one of her main uh, character personality (laughs) traits is that she has a very capacious vagina and that that is not seen as a bad thing and she just (laughs) needs to find the right dick to fill it. And I find that really uplifting. Like... (laughs) Because the call to Andy McDowell's agent must have been, "You yeah, we've got this amazing role for Andy. <laughs> obviously, four weddings and a funeral was a while ago, but we wanted to be Magic Mike XXL. Now, obviously, it's a great franchise. She's playing a woman with a massive vag. How does <laughs> you feel about that? But it's seen as a joyful thing. Like, yeah. we don't all have tiny mouse fannies. Like, kind of like in the Karma Sutra, they're very honest about this. They talk about four different sizes of vagina, four different sizes of penis, and yet we all have to pretend that we either have massive dicks or tiny vaginas, and we don't. <laughs> and I guess. And I guess to go back round to what you asked, that is what I've learnt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I'm so glad I'm so glad you answered that and not what's the value of mistakes. Yeah, no.
1: Mistakes, meh.
0: Yeah. Vagina. Forever. Yes. <laughs> oh. I have personally absolutely loved this evening. It's been a complete riot. Do join me please in giving the most roof-raising round of applause to the utterly brilliant <laughs> Catlin Moran.